and welcome to the Leading Through Uncertainty podcast series. I'm your host, Jude Jennison from Leaders by Nature, and I'll be interviewing leaders from different organisations and industries to find out more about the challenges they face in leading through uncertainty and how they overcome them. Today I'm talking to Sue Noyes, who's the former Chief Executive of the East Midlands Ambulance Service. And quite frankly, if the ambulance service isn't the best example you'll ever get of leading through uncertainty, I'm not sure what is. Tell me what you do, first of all. I um, am one of those people who say they have a portfolio career. So that means that I get to work in various areas that I'm really passionate about. Uh, I work with a number of charities. I'm chair of two charities. I'm a lay member in the NHS and I'm just beginning to build up my own coaching business as well. Wow. Prior to this, uh, I worked in the NHS for 25 years full time. I was an accountant and then I was a finance director for about 10 years and then latterly I was a chief exec and my last post was as a chief exec of East Midlands Ambulance Service. Well that certainly must have been about (laughs) leading through uncertainty if ever anything is. It definitely was. I think the NHS by its very nature is an uncertain world Mm. and I certainly saw um, lots of change, lots of uncertainty. We used to have a phrase leading can you be comfortable with ambiguity? Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things um, are in the NHS. Mm. And I think for me, sitting alongside leading through uncertainty was the whole issue of personal resilience. Yes. Um, and that was hugely important as well. Yeah. Uh, and as we sit here, I can think of several examples around kind of uncertainties. There was the personal uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps take a step back. When I first went to EMAS, I was asked to go. Um, I was actually planning... EMAS is... EMAS is East Midlands Ambulance Service. Mm-hmm. I was actually planning to leave. I was working in Leicester um, four years ago, and I was planning to do, to leave and do my portfolio career, which I'm now doing. Um, and then I was asked by um, what is now NHS Improvement, will you go to EMAS? And my first response, and I've said this to various people, was what do I know about ambulances other than seeing them drive around as every member of the general public does. Um, I thought, okay, I'll go. Um, The chair at the time, who subsequently left, um, said to me he was looking for somebody completely different, and I was completely different. Mm -hmm. So I went to this organisation that had a semi-militaristic overtone to it, um, hadn't had a substantive female chief exec, um, was not in a good place, had had a, um, a number of chief execs, a number of changes in the exec team, wasn't in a good place in terms of performance or particularly public reputation, mm-hmm. um, and there was a lot to do. Um, and so I went, okay, I thought I'll go with an open mind, see what happens. And by the end of the first day, I knew that I wanted to carry on. Wow, was, so even in the first day you knew. in the first day, there was something about it, even though I was just in the offices, I hadn't gone out and hadn't meant frontline staff or anything like that, I just knew there was something that kind of started to get under my skin, mm. and that stayed with me for the two and a half years that I was there. Um, so what was the biggest challenge in leading that organisation? The, there, sh- there were sheer practical challenges, I mean... EMAS, East Midlands, means five counties. Mm-hmm. So you're leading an organisation where there are 63 ambulance stations. Um, 
Derbyshire, Lincolnshire, Leicestershire, Northamptonshire, Nottinghamshire. It's a huge region. It was a huge region, and, and I live in Warwick, so it was a lot of travelling. The base was Nottingham, and then I could be carrying on from Nottingham as well. If I was going to meetings, I could go into Scunthorpe, Skegness, Buxton, Northampton, all over. Mm -hmm. So there were sheer practical things. Um, there was also an interesting challenge for me as well, being female. Um, lots of people obviously wearing uniform and I kind of went through a thought process with myself about what am I going to wear mm -hmm. um, wasn't comfortable at all to have any kind of dress uniform or anything I thought that's not me I haven't come through the service mm -hmm. was I going to wear trouser suits all the time no that's not me I, if I'm going to do this I'm going to do it and I'm going to be me and my style is dresses mm -hmm. and I just thought that's it, I'm going to wear dresses, and they're going to take me as I am. Because for me, and this is probably part of my coaching as well, authenticity and integrity is hugely important. Mm -hmm. And I thought, if I'm going to do this job, this large, rambling challenge of a job, then I've got to be me, and I've got to start with that. And that's not always easy when you're in an environment of people who are substantially different from you. And no, and it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I would be very different. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I did on the first day, um, I wrote on my whiteboard, which sat opposite my desk, be the change you want to see. And that stayed on that whiteboard for two and a half years. Wow. I came in one day and one of the cleaners had rubbed it off and I'm like, no, no, you can't do that. You've got to, I've got to have that on there. You're still going to be the change you I'm want to see. I'm still going to be the change I want to see. But it wasn't about having everybody dressing like me. Mm. It was about, it was something for me that I could see that was around resetting values. Yeah. Um, and that was really important. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, I'd just finished doing my, my first certificate in counselling and the work of Carl Rogers mm -hmm. had really, really struck a chord with me. Um, the whole unconditional positive regard, empathy, congruence, all of that had really struck a chord. And I thought, those principles spoke to me. They, they are going to be some of my founding principles about how I deal with people mm. here. And do you find that hanging on to those values is helpful in times of uncertainty? It absolutely is. I've found you can write all the plans you want, you can set all the objectives, priorities, key performance indicators that you want, but actually it's the work you do on values that becomes the bedrock of how you operate. Mm. Um, I actually had this conversation with a different group of people only earlier this week and we were talking about the importance of values. It gives you something to measure people's behaviour by. And when you look at, or certainly in my experience, when you look at problems in organisations, very often it's about the way people relate to each other. Mm. It's about particularly how executive teams relate or how boards relate. The rest of the organisation can see that. I knew that if something happened at EMAS in Nottingham, Somehow or other, the people in Skegness would know about it. Yeah. I don't know how. I don't know how the Bush Telegraph worked, but they did. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it was really important to kind of have a set of values that you work to. So things like integrity, respect, openness, mm -hmm. public service values, but mm -hmm. whatever feels right somehow became a bit of a barometer for me um, and was very important and actually when I was presented with my certificate for 25 years in the NHS which coincided with me being at EMAS what was written on my certificate was thank you for living the value, living and demonstrating the values mm. 
um, because values became important to me. Yeah. They were something that I tried to hold on to. And they helped you kind of measure performance and behaviour yeah. as well. So what was what was the greatest challenge of... I mean, the, I imagine the ambulance service, you, as you say, you have no idea when a call is going to come in and what's going to happen and who needs to be where. And I imagine it's an incredibly complex organisation to lead. It is a complex organisation. The actual model is very straightforward as a business model. Somebody rings up, their call is prioritised, and you try and find the resources. But that underlies a whole load of processes underneath. I that. can imagine. <laughs> not, not least for actually, I used to worry probably almost more about the call centre staff, the control room staff, mm -hmm. um, rather than frontline staff. Um, frontline staff obviously see a lot. They can be going to anything and everything. They can have one little line on their sat-nav machine telling them what it is. When they get there, it could be very different. Mm. Controls, control room staff take the call. They hear it. Um, they have to respond. They have to be remain professional. But they've got their imaginations as well going on. Yeah. And it's about the stresses that that brings. Mm. And when times are really, really busy, as they can be, mm -hmm. major storms, whatever, um, and they're searching and they're holding on to that stress that there is not an available resource because everybody is out there. Mm. And there are huge challenges about getting ambulances in the right place at yeah. the right times. And they're hearing the panic in people's voices they when they call. They do, and they yeah. know the consequences. Um, and increasingly, one of our biggest issues was about um, handover delays at hospitals. Because of the rising pressure, unrelenting, it's referred to very recently, mm -hmm. um, on NHS... If a hospital A&E is full of people, very sick people, and then there can be delays in handing over, ambulance staff are then tied up there, they're not able to turn around quickly and then get back out to the next call. Mm. So that was a huge stressor, mm. and that was something that we saw increasingly was a rising tide of handover delays. Right. and remains a real issue. Yeah. So there are lots of stresses in the system, mm. not least then for, for frontline staff who... By and large, we'll often say they've joined because they want to support their local community. Yes. And yeah. they know, I'm stuck at Hospital X, I can't get back to my local community in Derbyshire, Leicestershire, wherever it is. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a level of stress there. So for me, I was particularly concerned about the levels of stress. I was also quite concerned about what I perceived as an absence of pastoral support for right. people. And that was a big drive for me. Okay, great. And and so and what I'm hearing is this, this takes resilience to a whole new level, doesn't it? It did, it did absolutely, for me. It did. And, and I think the challenge with, with resilience is that we all have our limits. Yeah. So resilience isn't a bottomless pit of no. um, just dig a bit deeper and cope with a bit more pressure and stress. Yeah. How, how do you know where, where to draw the line? Because I guess it's different for everybody. It, be, it became very difficult on a personal basis, um, the resilience I needed. And I coped with it quite well. I've always thought of myself as quite a resilient person. Um, I coped with it well, but when you're running an emergency service, you can never switch off, mm. and that is the thing. So weekends, um, you get your response times coming through to phones, Blackberries, whatever it was at the time. Um, you don't switch off. You're mm. always thinking, where are we? Because you know there is a person at the end of that. Mm. And you may have to go to a patient with mental health issues. You may have to go to an elderly patient and you're waiting for family or friends or social care. 
interactions there. Um, meantime, there could be somebody else having a cardiac arrest and you haven't got anybody to send. Yeah. And that is a huge amount of um, challenge and stress mm. to hold on to. Yeah, because you're dealing with life and death situations, aren't you? You mm. are. Yeah. You are. And you know that others are doing it mm. and you know that others are putting themselves out there mm. to do it. Mm. Um, and there are the stresses as well from higher up in the NHS in terms of looking at performance. Why mm -hmm. are you not achieving your performance times? Yeah. But because I always used to feel because the ambulance service was the kind of first port of call, if there were stresses elsewhere, the ambulance service, I used to say, was a bit like liquid mercury. It would fill in the gaps to help the stresses elsewhere. But as those right. stresses have risen, the ambulance service itself has become more and more right. stressed. So, yeah... Wow, I mean, it's just—it's <laughs> such. I could talk to you for hours and delve deeper <laughs> we, in we could, into I, it. I could talk about it because it doing that job—it was a privilege. It had a profound impact on me because I felt like everything I'd done, and I, I had some great jobs in the NHS. Mm -hmm. I worked, spent a lot of time working in two mental health trusts, which I loved. Mm -hmm. I'm always interested in mental health. I worked at a regional level on. Um, setting up the 18-week target when it came in 10 years ago um, so I could see at a kind of broader macro level, if you like, what mm -hmm. was happening. Um, I've worked with GPs. I've worked on commissioning, which is the kind of planning of health services. I've worked in, in providing, which is the delivery of health services. Every job I had, I've loved in some way. Every mm. job gave me something. Mm. Some I enjoyed more than others for different sets of reasons. Mm -hmm. But I think of all of them, I felt like everything I'd learnt in the years leading up to going to EMAS, came to the fore in, in holding that job. Mm. And the, one of the things that was most important there for me, and again, this was about how am I going to do this job, I said at the start it was a sort of slightly militaristic approach, and yeah. it has that reputation. It's actually less than you might think. Um, but for me it wasn't about standing at the top of the tree and barking orders at people. Mm. It wasn't about drive your ambulance quicker. It's not about that. Mm -hmm. It was about thinking of all those problems that I went into. Mm. Look, Let's look at every part of the organisation. Mm. Let's get the best out of every part because then we'll start to get a gearing effect, a bit mm. like a bike, and you get the extra percentages that you want. Yeah. And alongside that, for me, and this is probably a reflection of where I was in my own personal development around counselling and coaching, um, it was about listening. I had a, a major staff engagement program, one of the things I'm proudest of, um, called Listening Into Action, which was about going out and going to ambulance stations. And that meant being there at either 7 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock at night, because that shift change over time. Yeah. So if you want to catch people, that's when you've got to go. Mm -hmm. And did countless listening events to hear what people's issues were, mm. so that we could start to address them. And what was the benefit of that? Um, a, it gave me the walk the walk, talk the talk. It gave me some validity, mm -hmm. gave me some education. I mm. learned very quickly mm. what some of the issues were. Mm -hmm. um, staff really appreciated it, mm. really appreciated it. I, I was thrilled when I saw the CQC report that came out actually just after I'd left the organisation where the staff had commented to inspectors about the open style and the listening and the availability. And that seemed to me like a huge um, tick in the boxes to try, but that mm. felt like a validation of my approach. Yeah. I mean, that's not what we normally hear about the NHS, is it? So, No, and I think 
I think it has for a long time, dude. I didn't want to be a chief exec in the NHS. People would say it to me, you should be a chief exec too. I didn't feel that I fitted. I didn't feel I was a Myers-Briggs ENTJ and that was a classic kind of NHS um, profile. Um, mine is ESFJ and I just thought I feel a bit different. But it was that whole conversation that I've had with myself about if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it my way. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be me. I'm mm -hmm. going to be authentic. Um, and I also knew that the staff that I would be managing were, I like to say, salt of the earth, and that is a compliment. Mm -hmm. um, and they'd seen a lot of leaders come and go. Mm -hmm. And they knew that everybody new comes in and, yes, this is the grand plan and yes. I'm going to change everything and we're going to do this, that and the other. And I just thought, what am I going to do that's going to be a bit different from mm -hmm. that? So what do you think are the key skills of leading through uncertainty? Without doubt, you've got to hold on to your own sense of self. Mm. You've got to be clear. That that whole piece I talked about around values is mm. really, really important. Mm. You've got to know what your, what your values are. You've got to know what your own red lines are mm. in terms of that. Um, as a leader, it's lonely. It genuinely is lonely. Yeah. I hear that a lot. Yeah. It is, well, it is heavy, heavy. What is it? Heavy lies the head that wears the crown, or something like mm -hmm. that, from one of the Henry plays. It can be. Well, the buck stops with you as a chief exec. It does, and we used to have these screens in the offices, and sometimes I'd look, and they'd be all red, and it would be like half six at night. Everybody would have gone, and I'd look, and I'd see the red screen, and I'd think, all of that sat on my shoulders here. Mm. Um, so you have to have that resilience to be able to carry that. You have to hold to your own sense. Thinking wider than that, you have to have faith in your team as well. Mm. Um, one of the things I had to do there was recruit a whole new executive team. As I say, the chair left, so there was some uncertainty and unrest in the non-executive side of the board as well. Mm -hmm. Lots of negative press. Um, you kind of have to hold on to where is it I'm trying to take the organisation, where is it we believe we should go, it's over there. We might deviate this way, we might deviate that way. We've got to keep trying to get there mm. and we've got to have some things to aim for. And it's that unconditional positive regard for yourself as well you, as for you others. You do and, and we all have our little inner voices that mm. sit on our shoulder and tell mm -hmm. us, you're this way, you're no good. What mm. are you doing that for? Mm. Um, and it's about how you deal with some of those things mm. as well. So you need you need your support network without a doubt. I am very lucky. I had a I have a wonderful husband who supported me. Didn't see me very much <laughs> in that time, um, but I knew he supported me. Mm. Um, I had personal resilience, but it was tested. Mm. I had support network. I had a few people myself who I'd known through my career in the NHS who were there as mentors. One particularly experienced chief exec who I knew I could ring up right. and say, yeah. can I talk to you about this or whatever. He would be there if I needed it. But I think is, mentors can be really invaluable. Cannot, I've always had do, multiple mentors. Absolutely. Yeah. You cannot do something, a, a big job, wherever it is, I think, without having a mentor. I'm about to start something new in the next couple of months, and I've already said I will need a mentor mm. because, um, pay, A, it's all about learning anyway. But you need somebody there who's who's, you know, been ahead of you and able to hand over the baton and say, you know, yep, you're doing okay. You might want to think about this. Have you thought about that? Mm. And actually, sometimes say to you, stop listening to that voice on your shoulder. Yeah, you can do it. 
Because by its very nature, when you're leading through uncertainty, you're doing things that you may ne- never have done before, but nobody else may have done them before. No. So sometimes it's it's having a mentor that you can just bounce ideas off because Absolutely. they might not have seen that situation either, but at least it's a, it's a voice that stops you being lonely yes, and on your own. It is, and, yeah. and you absolutely need that. You need mm. that support. Mm-hmm. Um, you need positivity as well. Mm. I, I, I became a fan of um, Six Thinking Hats, and I used to look round my exec team table, who's wearing the black hat. I wanted a team that had different qualities. I knew they would rub each other up in sometimes, but I knew that would be constructive. Mm-hmm. I didn't want a team that was exactly like me or a team that would all say yes mm-hmm. or wouldn't challenge me. Um, and you need some of that and you, and you need to hold some of that tension yeah. as well that you yes. get and still believe that you're moving forward. Mm. And what do you think are the skills that are needed for people at lower levels of the organisation when they're leading through uncertainty, that they've perhaps not got the experience that you've had coming up? Um, I mean, particularly in the NHS, <coughs> as you've had experience coming up through different organisations within the NHS, yeah. you're learning to be resilient yeah. and you're learning new skills and you're learning about values. <clears throat> what do you think is needed at, at other levels of the organisation? I actually used to be, I'd said, I've said I was concerned about control room staff. I'm actually, I actually was concerned about um, what we call middle managers, which is a bit of a denigrating term, I think. Yes. Um, because you've got pressure from above. Mm-hmm. I never knew to like above and below, but you've got that. You've got frontline staff who, as I say, are not backward in coming forward with their views on things and mm-hmm. the realities they're seeing. And I used to think that middle layer could be really squeezed and highly stressed because they've got pressure from all sides. Yeah. What are the support mechanisms that you're putting in for them? Mm-hmm. Um how are you supporting them to grow? It it became important, and actually, one of my regrets, looking back, is that I didn't um, think about doing more for that level. One of the organisations I've worked in, we spent some time. This is about ten years ago. We spent quite a bit of time on a um, emerging leaders program internally, mm-hmm. and that engaged senior leaders who were who were lecturers, but who were there for openness. There was external people brought in. There was a chance for people to have learning sets. And that worked really, really well. And I, I think that's something I, I think back and I think, I wish we'd done that. I wish I'd thought of us pushing that kind of a role in there because I think that would have had huge benefits, mm. particularly, I think, for a stressed organisation. Mm-hmm. And, and these are stressed organisations. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you did a lot in two and a half years and hindsight's a wonderful thing. So. It, it is, but you know, you know how it is. You always think, oh, we should just just mm. on that bit a bit more mm. and, and actually going back to your question about leading through uncertainty one of the biggest challenges is which are the things I'm going to concentrate on because you're not able to deliver everything mm. if you're in a senior and pressurised role mm. you're not able to do everything that you want to do mm. and that is a hard lesson because you can start and this this was my first substantive chief exec role mm. you want to be able to do everything mm. you want to everything to be perfect and it isn't you have mm. to compromise about what level am I going to accept mm-hmm. as being, I'm happy with this level, and which are the things that I am going to have to sacrifice because it's simply not going to be possible in terms of either time, resources in terms of people, or money. 
Um, and I think that's difficult for a lot of people because I think people want to do a good job. Yes. And and the the view of a good job in quotes is is often people's view is that that means they get everything done. Yes. And and I don't know anybody that ever gets everything done that they want to get done <laughs> these days. I think no. I think we are all swamped and that's going to continue to yes. be that way. So Moving on to your portfolio career then, that must be even more of a challenge given that you're um, you know, the chair of two different charities and coaching and lay member of the NHS and goodness knows what else and no doubt family things yes. as well to to yes. um because you know, I'm sure your husband wants to see you occasionally too. So <laughs> how how do you juggle all of those priorities and, and how do you work out where your priorities are? First and foremost, the priorities to me are the things that I'm passionate about, the things that I want to be involved in. Um, excuse me, since I've left the NHS, I've been asked to do one or two other things, and I've I've thought about them, and I've thought, no, I'm not feeling it. I have to feel it, and I have to have some kind of connection, first and foremost, mm-hmm. and I haven't. Um, so first and foremost, passion. There's got to be something I feel passionate about. Um my second thing is practical, very practical. I have different coloured notebooks, different coloured folders for the things that I'm doing because I thought if I don't have these delineations in my mind, everything could become one big blur mm-hmm. um, and I've got to be clear. I have a diary where I set aside specific times during the week for each of the things that I do. Mm-hmm. And I've realised that I need a bit of time every day just for general admin to cover in anything that comes in. Right. Um, I have to say, I'm loving what I'm doing now. I really do. I'm involved in things that matter to me. Um, It wouldn't surprise you to know one of my charities is the National Ambulance Staff Charity. They asked me to become chair there. So that's playing to all the things that I felt passionate about while mm. I was at EMAS, which is supporting staff, their well-being, mm. particularly around mental health. All of those themes have mm. come together in that. Um, but equally, there are other things. My coaching, I, I feel I'm just at the beginning of my journey as a professional coach. This is early days for me. Um, but it's a thrill to be able to, it's a privilege mm. to be able to sit down with a person, to listen to them. Mm hold up the mirror, reflect back, ask what you hope are really helpful questions. Mm. And I always find that I learn something about me as well. Mm. Um, and all of this, I feel, like is, is part of my own continuous development. Mm. And I don't want that to stop, because mm. if I'm not learning, then I might as well, you know, say that's the end of everything. And, it, and it's not. There's so much that, that, out, that is out there. I loved my time in the NHS. I absolutely loved it. It was the perfect career for me. But there's a whole world out there that's not NHS as well. Mm. And there are a whole series of things that I can do now that that help a wider group of people. Fantastic. And what I'm hearing a lot of is about having passion for what you do Mm. and a sense of purpose. And I think that's often lost in organisations. Yes. Um, How do you... What would your advice be to people who've lost their sense of purpose and their passion for what they're doing and they've got sucked into the quagmire of just the everyday turmoil of stuff that has to be done? Because I, I imagine in the in the ambulance service, <coughs> yes, you were passionate about what you were doing, but you could easily get embroiled in all the process and oh, completely. Yes. performance management yes. and all the rest of it. Yes, uh, and be 
weighed down by Yeah. That, so what's your advice to people to help them stay attuned to their passion and sense of purpose? Definitely, however hard this is, make time for some space for yourself. Make time for some mindful space for yourself, whether that's um, horses, whether it's walking the dog, whether it's doing mindful colouring, whether it's reading, painting, whatever it is, find something else that you can lose yourself in. Mm. Even if it's only for an hour a week, mm. you have to have something that's going to nourish you, nourish, nourish the soul. Mm. You have to have that because that gives you energy again mm. and it resets where you are. Mm. Um, something I've done really recently, I've been working um, alongside a group of small business owners um, and learning about social media, which has been fantastic. I love Twitter. I love LinkedIn. <laughs> I love all of these things. Um, but one exercise we did was about what's my why? Why am I doing this? Mm. And starting with, you know, sheets of paper, coloured pens, mood boards, whatever it is, what's your why? What's your mind map of why you're doing this? Mm. And quite a few of the people um, have said, actually, I've realised I'm not doing the right thing for me. Mm. There's a there's a there's a there's a lack of a link or there's a broken link between what I'm doing versus why I'm doing it. Mm. Um, and I need to get closer to my why Great. as well as much as my what. Yeah. Now, for me, when I did it, I felt very strongly about why I'm doing mm. what I'm doing now. Mm. Um, but it was really interesting observing that in colleagues who said, actually, I've realised I need to just change this and I need to refocus. I think space for yourself and every so often keep testing yourself on what mm. is your focus. Are you aligned? Are you doing what gladdens the soul. Mm. What I'm hearing a lot of is um, creating a structure amongst the uncertainty because I think we tend to think of uncertainty as just chaos. Yes. And and there's a tendency within that to just be pulled in so many different directions you don't know which way is up. Yes. What I'm hearing a lot from you is um, you're creating a structure within which to flex and, and also a strong... Um, view around continual learning yes and a lot of a lot of senior leaders are afraid to learn because there's the perception that if they don't already know it they shouldn't be in the job and there's that inner voice that comes in how how do you overcome that um i knew and i knew that everybody else would know that i knew nothing about the ambulance service so that gave me a license to be able to ask any and every question Mm. without thinking am i going to look an idiot here um, because I could just ask it. I, I went to things, I had the wrong clothes on once. They, they were, there was a certain group of guys, they were wanting me to take part in an exercise. I had my high heels on and I was climbing up masonry and things like that. And I knew that it would look faintly ridiculous, Was health and safety was out the window, but I still did it because I wanted them to see that I was a real person and that I would have a go at oh. doing these things. Mm. Um, so you have to banish some of those thoughts mm. and... You have to be. I always wanted to be one of those people. If I found somebody who could be part of the team, who would be probably better than me in their chosen field, that would be great because they would bring that extra strength, resources, brilliance Mm. to a team. Mm. And I wasn't fazed by the fact that they might outshine me. Not everybody's always comfortable with that. But Mm. for me, Mm. it was about who's the best in this field? Can I persuade them to come and work Mm. here? Because we need the best. And if I can't get the best, who's the next best person mm. to come? And it's about having the humility to accept that that might not you be do. you. 
and it, and it and it may not be, but mm. if it isn't me, then I might know a man or a woman who it could be. Mm. Um, exactly. And can I persuade them to contribute in some yeah. way? And and you have to have that, and you have to hold on to that. That was one of my values, and it probably goes back to some of the Carl Rogers um, learning that I had mm -hmm. when I was doing my counselling mm -hmm. about the importance of being yourself, being honest, being open. Um, and, and that had had a pr profound effect on me, and I think it's it's almost no coincidence to me that I was doing that the year before I went to EMAS because I know I took a lot of that into the way that I wanted to operate. Great. So one final tip then Go for on. any aspiring chief exec um, or anybody who's at, at any point in their career that has got to lead through uncertainty, what's your key tip for them? It's about the passion and it's about connection. If you still feel connected, no matter how tough it is, then that will see you through. If you can still feel something in your heart that mm. gets you out of bed in the morning to do it, then do it. If you find yourself thinking, actually, I'm thinking about something else or I'm thinking about retiring, then it's the time to retire. Um, but whatever you feel passionate, whatever you feel connected, stick through it, but also protect yourself at the time and make sure you've got that support network and ways of nourishing yourself because um, these jobs are hard, they're hugely worthwhile, but you do need to protect yourself and have resilience as well. Well, thank you, Sue. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to thank you. I could you. sit here and talk for hours and, <laughs> and maybe even days, and I'm sure you have tons you. of stories. Oh, uh, it's, been, it's lovely to sit here and just talk about it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, so thank Thanks you very much. Thank you. Well, it was really inspiring talking to Sue. She's so grounded, warm-hearted and empathic, and she really understands that it's all about influencing people when leading an organisation. That's it for this podcast. I was your host, Jude Jennison from Leaders by Nature. Keep leading and I'll come back soon with the next interview on Leading Through and Soon.